Life is going to give you challenges, struggles. It's going to force you to face your fears. Even though these may feel like your worst enemy, in truth, these are actually your greatest allies. My name is Lance Isios. Welcome to the University of Adversity. Class is in session, about to learn a lesson in the game. We embrace the pain, take it and we make some change. Without scarcity, I don't know where I'll be. It's how we learn and now it's your turn. Let's get it. Welcome to the University of Adversity. Oh, yeah, we're back. Welcome to the University of Adversity, everybody. Happy Monday. I hope you guys are having a great day. So today's conversation, something we haven't really talked about before. Very interesting, very interesting topic. My next guest's name is John Lombard. He's a cultural intelligence and cultural diversity professional. He's from Vancouver here, where I'm from, which I look forward to connecting with him in real person because he's very connected in the entrepreneurial world. But he's been living in China and Asia for a long time, so he's really immersed himself. He believes cultural diversity is about more than just bringing together people from different cultures. It's about teaching people to understand, respect, and adapt to each other's cultures. When done successfully, this can lead to significant improvements in performance. So immersing yourself like John has really learning and really understanding um, and turning that, you know, building the cultural intelligence and cultural diversity is just super cool. So let us know what you think. If you haven't subscribed, subscribe, leave us a review and share this with somebody that needs it. Listen to this to the end, my friends. Sit back, enjoy, relax. John Lombard coming right up. And we're rolling. John, welcome to the show. Thank you very much, Lance. Glad to be, glad to be on. Awesome. Well, we've been chatting back and forth for a little while, and um, I'm glad that we finally got to connect. You've yeah, done some too. done some amazing things, um, you know. And I, before I unpack that and give a little bit of people more insight into you than the intro, give us a little bit of backstory about yourself. Would love to know more about what you've been up to and sort of how you got to where you are today. All right. Well, the the shortest version, um, I've spent, I went to China straight out of university in 1993, spent the last 25 years there, went over initially as an English teacher and then kind of moved into the entrepreneurial side, starting out my own businesses. And uh, in that process, learned a great deal about failure because uh I had zero background in business. I grew up in a village of 900 people in Ontario. My dad was a, was a priest. Um, my education was in the arts, in language and literature. I had zero business experience or background. So I, I really learned from experience from scratch. Mm. Uh, so, But I ended up uh, starting three different companies in China. And I've just this, this year returned to Canada. And I'm starting up my fourth company here. What was China like? <laughs> Amazing. Um, there are very few people that that lasted as long as I did. Um, yeah, that's a I, long time. Yeah, it is. I think among the few that do last that long, for all of us, it's pretty much the same thing that keeps us there. It's like I'm a kind of like um, you know extreme sports people that are adrenaline junkies. It's kind of the same phenomenon. China is changing so quickly there are so many new opportunities new things happening all the time that you know um it's a constant state of change constant state of new opportunity and for i think for the majority of people that chaos kind of throws them off it, it it's too unpredictable but for me and the, that small group of people who last there a long time 
it's incredibly addictive. I just love it. Uh, returning to Canada, for me, my biggest issue, biggest frustration is just by comparison, it is so slow here. Mm. Yeah. Um, yeah, yeah like, everybody's in everybody's in slow motion. <laughs> yeah, like seriously, in in five years in China, I would I did more than I would have done probably in in twenty or twenty five years in Canada. Wow. Yeah, I have a, I have a buddy who's uh, who's a, a teacher there as well, and he moved back here, but then he went back because it was just he loved it in Shanghai. I guess that's where he is. Yeah, well, I think it's also these days, it's much, much easier to go to China and live there. You know, it's, yeah. you know, there are lots of people speak English. It's become more Western. It's much more friendly, much more hospitable. When I went there in 1993, this is four years after Tiananmen Square. You know, um, almost nobody spoke English. Foreigners were still, gen- like, it was very difficult to even get into the country. It was very closed. Nobody knew what was happening there. Um, it was, it was very, very different. So I'm sure among the, the generation that are going to China now, a lot more are going to last, you know, 20, 25 years. But the ones who went there back when I did, it was not an easy life. There, there were a lot of challenges. I've heard that the food there is a lot different than the Chinese food here. Oh yeah. (laughs) Well, well, first, yeah, absolutely. Chinese food here is generally, you know, westernized yeah um you know, like fortune cookies aren't even a chinese thing you don't find fortune cookies in china they're entirely a north north american thing but right. then you also have different regional cuisines uh, i think in Ch- in canada the main cuisines you have are cantonese and sichuan mm. um yeah but in china you've got a lot more different different styles of cooking as well very cool and this is to be able to live there for 25 years, that's, that's amazing. And what I'm curious about is how, how much has things changed as far as business from when you first went there till now? Or, and yeah, and, and just walk us through that first because that's fascinating. Well, massively, like, like I said, when I went there in 1993, China was still very close, very, very paranoid. So yeah. just give you a general idea of the environment. Um, the city I was in was called Qingdao, which is mm-hmm. mainly famous for its beer, Tsingtao beer. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, but there were three buildings in the whole city that were licensed for foreigners to live there. So if you were a teacher, you lived in a university. If you weren't a teacher, you lived in one of those three buildings. And that was it. You couldn't live anywhere else. Hmm. Uh, Chinese who came to visit me, every Chinese person who came to visit me would have to first register at the front desk with their ID number. If they visited me more than three times, the police would go to visit them, to interview them, to find out why are they spending so much time with the foreigner? What are they talking about? What did I say to them? Things like this. Um, if, I want to visit, if I wanted to visit a Chinese person's home, I actually couldn't. I would have to first, the, the, the head of the household would have to take me to the local police station. We would have to submit an application stating, you know, why I'm going there, what date, what time I'm going, what is the purpose of the visit. And we'd have to get a permit from the police station for me to visit his home. If we didn't have that permit, it was illegal for me to visit him. Yeah. Um, wow. Bizarre. Yeah. One in every three people that wanted to be friends with me was most likely informing the police, reporting back to the police on what I was saying. Uh, mail, all mail that I sent, all mail that I received was, was opened and checked. 
Yeah. Um, so it was, it was very, very high level of paranoia. Mm. Uh, compared with today, um, you talk to almost any foreigner who's living in China, unless you are doing something which is very explicitly drawing the attention of the Chinese government, like you're in Tiananmen Square with a sign saying freedom for Tibet, you know, um, beyond that, you're pretty much ignored. You, um, you can do almost anything. A lot of people, uh, especially I find uh, Western women in China, a lot of them say that they actually feel much more safe, much more free there than mm. they do back back here. Um, really? Yes, yeah, so it's it's completely changed. It's a and even with business, you know, uh, back then it was you could a foreigner could not open their own business in China. Uh, at best you could have a joint venture that was majority owned by a Chinese partner, you owned a minority. Today you can have joint ventures where you own the majority and you can have wholly foreign owned enterprises. So, you know, Wow. The, the, yeah. So it, it's, it's changed phenomenally. That's fascinating, man. Like, I don't think a lot of people know that. No. Like, people, no. people have such a misconception of China. Yeah. I mean, I know I did. I mean, maybe I'm just being ignorant, but I, I remember just thinking, I, in, in my perspective, it would just be so challenging there. And that from what I was taught in school, I guess it's changed so much. Well, yeah, it's, I, I think, Almost everybody that goes to China, when they get there, it's not what they expected. Yeah. Like the whole, the whole thing of, you know, China is a communist country. Yeah. Um, that is not true on several levels. Uh, first of all, the, 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 the reigning party is the Communist Party of China, but they've abandoned almost all communist principles. You know, they have capitalists that are that are members of the communist party. They embrace capitalism in many ways. It's, it's a, it's a socialist dictatorship now. Mm. It's still not, certainly not, not a democracy, but yeah. it's much more a socialist dictatorship. And it is far in, in practical terms, it is far more capitalist than Canada is. Huh. Um, it, it's a, it's one of the most capitalist countries in the planet. As far as like individuals, Chinese people as individuals, look at how they're taking over the world. You know, they are buying up com companies all over the world, investing in resources. You know, they, it, it's massive. And as a, as a foreigner there, you know, again, there's just so many opportunities if you know what you're doing. That must have been a really interesting thing to watch as things changed. Loved it, yeah. Yeah. Um, and, and like my, I should also explain, particularly for your, for your listeners, my, my passion, my main area of focus is culture. Yes. So um, in China, my main work was doing cross-cultural consulting. So particularly like around, this started around 96, 97 is when China started opening up and all your foreign companies are flooding into China. But they're sending over foreign managers that are clueless about Chinese culture, how to manage a Chinese team, deal with Chinese partners, settle the Chinese market. So I did training for those companies. I worked with you know, Microsoft and Motorola, Siemens, all sorts of you know, major international companies, helped them understand how to work in the Chinese culture. And now back in Canada, my, my thing is doing cultural diversity training for corporations. But because of that passion for culture, being able to watch that transformation, like 25 years of change in China would be equal to about 75 years of change, equivalent change in Canada the, the, for how far they went in those 25 years. Yeah, that's what I was going to say. I was going to say earlier that 
for things to change that much in China, like that's a lot because they've pretty much kept things similar for a lot of years, right? There's, I, I didn't yeah. realize that there was that much change there. You don't hear about that. Yeah, no, it's like, pretty much the the vast majority of change started pretty much after like 95, 96. That's when the that's when the real reforms came into place. China started really opening up. There was there were some changes that took place like several years before, but that was kind of that progress or change was kind of stalled or canceled by the events in Tiananmen Square in '89. Mm. So then you had kind of a period where China shut down again, and then '95, '96 is when it really started opening up and changing. So how is, let's talk about the social media aspect over there yeah. because you hear that everything is, well, from, I, I hear everything is blocked off. People can't get access to the, these different things. It's like talk us through that because this is super interesting at kind of like demystifying what people say about China. Yes. Censorship is quite strict in China. Sites like uh, Facebook, Twitter, uh, things like that. Google are blocked by the government. Mm. Uh, there are it, search terms that will say, like if you search for um, June 4th, 1989, which is the date of the Tiananmen Square massacre, it will be blocked. You, you cannot search for that. Wow. Um, so there are things like that. However, the real result of that has not been to deprive the Chinese of information. The real, real result of that has been to turn Chinese into very tech-savvy people. Um, like in Canada, if I talk about a VPN, a significant number of Canadians will have no idea what a VPN is. China, everybody knows what a VPN is. Majority of people have it. For those listening who don't know what it is, a VPN, virtual proxy network, it's basically a way that you can get around these firewalls, around these blocks. So if I want to go on my Facebook in China, if I just turn on my VPN, boom, I'm on Facebook, I'm on Google, I can use all of those things. So all, you know, the vast, pretty much any Chinese under 30 years old is fully familiar with those things, knows how to use them. And then like local social media, the, the biggest one would probably be uh, WeChat right now. A lot of it is kind of like uh, here. There's a lot of fake news, things like that. The people can technically can say whatever they want. However, um, China does now require um, like real ID registration for internet. So if you're using social media or anything like that, they have your name, your ID number, everything like that. If you say anything that they don't like, you could just have end up having police show up at your door. Um, there's a term in China, if people say that, they're, that somebody's having tea with the police, it means that that person has been detained by the police for mm. something they've said or done. So, so I think for, for foreigners, it tends to be easier because I know very few foreigners, unless they're saying like, like really extreme stuff. I know very few foreigners that have been targeted by police. But mm. for Chinese, it, it is a significant issue. How are the actual Chinese about cultural diversity? I mean, for, for people going over there, how, how much are they starting to accept that as the foreigner being part of their, their life, their, their, their lifestyle? They're fairly good. Um, the Chinese culture is an extremely pragmatic, very, very flexible culture. Like mm. when you look at the 5,000 years of Chinese history, they were conquered over and over and over by different groups. And essentially, instead of them being assimilated by the conquerors, the conquerors ended up being assimilated by them. You know, they just kind of adapted what they were doing. And um, it's hilarious in China. I'll see, I'll see like 
senior citizens, like 60, 70 years old in the evening out doing, uh, doing dance to like modern rock or hip hop music or things Uh like this, you know? Um, so there's this real, real mixture of things. Um, now cultural diversity, it's kind of a mix because China obviously like particularly racially, ethnically is, you know, almost everybody is the same. You know, everybody looks the same. They come, you know, similar cultural backgrounds, things like that. If I go there, I'm very, very obviously a foreigner. Yeah. I, 25 years there, I'm fluent in Chinese. Nobody is ever going to mistake me for a Chinese person. Mm. Yeah. Um, so you do stick out. There can be different treatment in some ways that gives you advantages in some ways, you know, it disadvantages you, but it's, it's always there. Mm. Uh, there also is a fair degree of racism. Chinese will generally say they're not racist because for them, racist means like active discrimination, you know, violence towards people, treating people badly because of their race, things like that. That doesn't happen very much. But you ask them questions like, you, what do you think of Japanese? I hate Japanese. You know, Japanese are evil. Um, <laughs> oh, you know, what, what do you think of blacks? Oh, well, black, you know, a lot of Chinese feel that blacks are dirty. They're not as smart as whites, things like this. And they'll, they'll state these opinions straight out. Mm-hmm. However, when it comes to actually meeting a Japanese person or a black person or anything like this, that attitude doesn't really carry over. Like mm. when you're an individual, they treat you, and particularly if you're doing business, they don't give a damn what your background is, where you're from, anything like that. It's simply, can we do business together? Can we make money? And that's, that's pretty much it. So very, very pragmatic. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. What are their thoughts about Canada and the U.S.? Like what, how do they, <laughs> what do they think of us? Well, until, the, uh, until our spat over the Huawei thing, uh, prior to that, um, Chinese attitudes towards Canada were great. Uh, U.S., they you know, like pretty well every other country in the world outside of North America, sees the U.S. as, you know, the, the world police trying to, trying to force themselves, um, you know, using their military to, to force their ideology on other people. Uh, there's obvious, obviously conflict and competition between China and the U.S. Uh, but again, their opinion of America in general and the way they'll treat individual Americans would be very, very different. Hmm. Individual Americans would be welcome. No problem. Canadians before the Huawei thing, they loved us. Um, Two of the most famous Canadians, most famous and most respected, or sorry, not just Canadians, foreigners, two of the most famous, most respected foreigners in China are Canadian. Hmm. One is Dr. Norman Bethune, who went to China and actually uh, helped them develop their medical system and everything like this during the revolution, worked with Mao Zedong. Mm. Um, every Chinese child in school, in primary school, learns four virtues, and one of those virtues is to live, to live your life sacrificially like Norman Bethune. Mm. So everybody learns about him. And then the other one is a more modern one. Uh, his Chinese name is Dashan, but he's a Canadian performer that speaks absolutely flawless Chinese and became a very, very popular, very famous performer on Chinese TV in the uh, late 90s and early, early 2000s. You know, mm. So overall, Canadians are viewed as, as very, very positively. We're not trying to force our agenda on China, things like this, until the Huawei incident happened. Mm. And then, well, let's uh, let, let's talk about some of the struggles that you faced in China. So yeah. let's talk about 
um, you know, you're doing business there, you're helping people. Like what are some of the biggest things that as a foreigner you faced that, that helped you grow through the whole experience? Well, I think there's, there's kind of two sides to that question. One is more the personal, just, you know, mistakes I made that even if I'd made those mistakes in Canada, you know, there's a learning process in being mm -hmm. an entrepreneur. Yeah. Um, then the other would be the more culture specific ones. So I'll, I'll start off very quickly with more of the personal ones. Uh, so like I said, I had zero business background. My first company that I tried to get going in China was a complete and utter absolute abject failure. I lost all the money I put into it simply because I, I really didn't have a clue what I was doing. Um, yeah, you know, yeah. I had no business plan. I just kind of had this. I had a new, like a lot of a lot of your entrepreneurs. I had a great idea, and I figured that just the great idea would carry me through. And that yeah. first experience taught me that you know the great idea is millions of people have great ideas. Very few are able to bring that Ex to realization. Execute, yeah, yeah. So. I learned from that. There was a lot more I needed to, to learn from that. And my next business and my first successful business, I brought on a partner who, you know, I was more the, the visionary, the dreamer, the, you know, this is what we're going to do, this, you know, things like that. She was the practical person that, you know, okay, well, this is what we need to do to get that done. Yeah. Mm -hmm. um, and then I learned a lot from her as well. Yeah. Um, then my, I'd say my biggest personal failure was my third company. I started up a baby sign language company in China, which, uh, again, a brilliant idea for the Chinese market, you know, helping children in China where it's a one-child family, massive focus on education, anything that's viewed as helping their children, they'll buy into it. You know? So I started up my company. I invested tons of my own money in it. I had friends investing money to help me. And then about four months in, and that first four months is you know, kind of developing the program, getting ready to go just as we're ready to launch. The police show up at my door and tell me that I've got two days to get out of the country. My visa has been canceled. Hmm. And what had happened was besides my business, I also had a nonprofit organization in China helping a ethnic minority group. Some of the Chinese leaders of that group had engaged in activities that were against the law. And when the government investigated them and found out that I was also involved in that group, they just automatically assumed that I was encouraging or facilitating mm. this. So I was just told I had to leave China. Mm. Um, yeah, so my company was me, a secretary, and a salesperson. Yeah, uh, there was nobody else, nobody that could run the company. Coming back to Canada, um, I couldn't run the company from Canada. I, I was trying to get back, but I had no idea. Is it going to be one month, three months, six months for me to get back to China to get this sorted out? So I wasn't looking for a full-time job in Canada. It ended up taking a year for me to get it all sorted out and get back to China. So by the time I could get back to China, my company had gone under because there was nobody that could run it. I'd lost all my money. My friends had lost the money they'd invested. Because I'd had no job in Canada, I had basically maxed out my credit cards. I had some $30,000 in debt. I arrived, so I arrived back in Canada, no company, $30,000 in debt, You know, friends that have lost their money because of me. One of the biggest... Low, uh, low points in my life, huge blow to the ego. But again, you know, um, I, think, I think a lot of people in that situation kind of look at it that, well, it wasn't my fault. And it wasn't, you know, 
wasn't my fault what happened, but it was still my fault. I still had responsibility because I'd set up a company that was entirely dependent on me. And so like one of the first things I learned from that in every business I've started up since then, one of my first goals is to make myself obsolete as quickly as possible. Yeah. You know, to, to be training other people, having other people so that if I get sick, the company can keep going. If there's a family emergency, if I want to take my family for a half year on holiday or whatever, yeah. the company can keep going without. And so yeah, isn't, isn't that the, the, that's just it, right? Like if you got to, if you remove yourself from the equation, you have, it has to be able to run. Otherwise, yeah. what's the point of even you, you might as well just have a boss because you're stuck there anyways. Well, that, 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 and that's right. Like that's, that's right. When I'm talking with people about, about failure and building your company, that's one of the big, big things. I, as long as that company is dependent on you, you're really not an entrepreneur. You're an employee of your own company. Yeah. You know, it's, that's such an important factor. And thank you for, thank you for bringing that up because yeah, I mean, that's just, otherwise, I mean, the whole idea of being an entrepreneur is to create that time freedom, right? Yeah, <laughs> I mean, but I, that's right. But I think beyond that, I think there's even more. What I find with differentiating between the successful and the unsuccessful entrepreneurs yeah. is also that attitude of when, when shit happens, do you look at it and say, this wasn't my fault, there's nothing I could do? Or do you look at it and say, okay, what could I learn from this? How could I have done that differently? You know, so that situation would be very, very easy for me to simply blame it on circumstances beyond my control, which what happened was beyond my control. There is no way to predict that. But I still could have set up the company in a way so that if that happened, the company would be able to continue. You know, so right. that kind of personal accountability and, you know, really looking at it, not just blaming other people, other events that, you know, there's always something in that that is under your control. You need to identify that and, and take action on that. Yeah, like how important is failing? Like, let's yeah. talk about that. Let's just talk about that okay. itself. <laughs> All right, well, failure is actually one of my big passions. Um, in early September this year, uh, Vancouver had the Vancouver Startup Week, uh, like a week of activities for entrepreneurs, small businesses. Uh, I hosted a session called Entrepreneurial Fuck-Ups, huh. which was a panel of myself and four successful entrepreneurs two hours just talking about their biggest failures. Yeah. Um, and it was, it ended up being one of the most popular events of the entire week. Mm, awesome. Yeah. Um, yeah. But for me, you know, and, and like there, there's so many kind of cliches about, you know, you, the only failure is the failure to try you know, and, you know, th things like that. But it is, um, there is simply no entrepreneur, no successful entrepreneur out there that hasn't failed tons of times. You know, and so often we see the successes. If you're only looking at the successes, successes, especially for a younger entrepreneur, it looks impossible. Like I can't do that. Yeah. When you start looking at the failures, you know, and not just for being an entrepreneur, but for life, you know, how you, everybody is going to fail. That, that is a given success in life is determined by how you handle failure. Right. So, yeah. Uh, like, you know, we were talking before about uh, cultural aspects. So Chinese culture, failure is, there's a huge fear of failure in the Chinese culture. Failure is a very, very bad thing to the point where if you ask Chinese people, what are their dreams for the future? Even if they have an idea what it is, they won't tell you. Because there's kind of this fear that if they tell you and then they don't accomplish it, they will lose face. You, oh, wow. you, you only talk about those things after you've done it and showing your success.
Hmm. So there's this massive fear of failure. And when I started up my companies over there, you know, I'd, I'd have my second company. I'd have a meeting with my staff. I'd ask them for ideas, for suggestions, things like that. And nobody would say anything. They'd wait for me to say something and then agree with me because if they say something and their idea is wrong, it causes problems, they fail. From their perspective, they lose face. It makes them look like a bad employee. You, um, and in a Chinese company, they would they would generally be punished for that. And this is a real – I, I tried to encourage them, like, you know, come on, guys, I want you to – I did everything to tell them, but their emotional, cultural reaction just made them too afraid to do that. So I then started up – a weekly failure meeting. Every Friday afternoon, we'd have a meeting where every person had to talk about what was their biggest failure from the week, why did they fail, what did they learn from it, and what can they do next time either to avoid that or to handle it better when it happens. And when I started that, they hated it, absolutely hated it. They would come up with like the tiniest little things like, you, know, oh, I was supposed to phone a client back, but I forgot to, so next time I will make a note that I should phone them back. You know, um, like really tiny, innocuous stuff. But I would share my failures and, you know, big failures, everything like this. Within a year, it had completely transformed. Our failure meeting became like the highlight of the week for employees. I'd have employees coming to me on Wednesday or Thursday bragging that they had like a really great failure story to share on Friday because they learned that, you know, Failure was not, I did, failure is fine. You're going to fail. Now, I don't want the person who fails and then does the same thing again and again and again. Doesn't, if they, if they don't learn, they're fired. Yeah, I'm not going to keep, but, but someone who tries something, fails, learns from it and does better. That is the person I want in my company. That's the person who's going to grow and develop, not the person who never fails because they never, ever try anything. Mm-hmm. And so it, it really, and I, I, every company I had after that in China, I had that same thing, that, that failure meeting, which was so incredibly important in, in transforming the company. My, my employees became so much more, they just so much more willing to take action, to take initiative, you know, everything like that. It was, it was brilliant. I loved it. Yeah. Cause what you're doing there is you're encouraging vulnerability too. Yeah. Like you're encouraging people to be vulnerable and people want to be vulnerable and open up because sharing that just helps people get through these things, you know? And yeah. failure is a funny word because like, it's just learning. You know, yeah. like you're just, it's just, it's just, the, it's like a growth tool. Yeah. It's like you well, learning from this thing that didn't work out for yeah. a specific reason, you know? That's right. Well, whenever I talk with groups about failure, one of the, particularly for entrepreneurs, one of the things I'll bring up is if you, if you look online for statistics, you know, depending on who you're reading, it'll generally say between 70 to 85% of entrepreneurs will fail. Right. So, if you're someone just planning on getting started and you're looking at that, you've got essentially a 15 to 25% chance of success. That can seem really, really intimidating. But you have to break that down because when they talk about you know, 70 to 85% of entrepreneurs, they're talking about everybody who tries to start a business. Now, to me, those basically break down into three categories. One are the ones that try, fail, and just give up. I tried, it didn't work, I'm not going to do it again. Second are the ones who try, fail, try again, fail again, but never learn. They keep doing the same thing. Oh, you know, the, the, yeah, everybody has like the, that, that crazy uncle who's always got the, the, the get-rich-quick scheme 
that never works out. And he's always just doing the same things over and over and over again. Yeah. Third are the, are the entrepreneurs that fail, learn from their failure, and try again and just keep doing it until they become successful. But they learn from that. If you were to take, if you were to cut out those first two groups and just take the third group and how many of them become successful, your stats are going to be far, far, far higher. The reason why those stats look so terrible is because they're including those first two groups who are never going to be successful. Right. Interesting. Interesting. I, um, I'm starting to learn that I'm, I'm happy I failed a lot in the past because I've learned so many lessons, you know, and, and it's funny. Well, it's the same as adversity, man. Failure, adversity, it's, you get hit with this thing and you, you can either be the victim you can either go, oh, poor me, or you can yeah. go, hmm, what am I learning from this? Because you're going to get better. Yeah. Every time you fail or adversity, you're going to grow from that to the next level that you are supposed to be at for yourself. Yeah, that's right. And, and to me, like, so many times when I talk with people, you know, one, one of the reactions I'll get is, well, uh, it's impossible. I can't do that. It's too difficult. Um, you know, there's nothing I can do, things like that. And my immediate reaction to them will be whatever that thing is. If we were to look at everybody else in the world who's been in the same situation as you, have all of them failed or have some of them been able to turn it into a success? You know, if you're suffering from some terrible illness, look at Terry Fox. You know, if you're talking about, you know, um, you know personal struggles, per- persecution, things like that, look at Nelson Mandela. Like there, if you're, company you're having real struggles to build that company make it bigger i can pretty much guarantee there's going to be some other company doing the same or something similar that's very successful so obviously this is possible yeah you know and and, you know kind of getting yourself just over that barrier of thinking it's not possible yeah yeah it is possible somebody has done it everything is possible now i mean there's it's just a belief if you don't yeah. believe, then you're right. If you don't think you can do something, you're absolutely right. You can't. That's and right. yeah. even if the thing that you're doing doesn't turn out exactly what you expected, it's going to bring people or other things that will bring something else into your life that'll be even better than what you're even going for. That's why it's so important to understand that it's not a linear path. Yeah. And, and I think, I think it is also important. Like sometimes I hear people say, you know, nothing is impossible. Well, there are things for me that will be impossible. I will never be an Olympic runner. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You know, um, there are things that simply are going to be impossible for me. When you try to do something, I think there are three basic reactions, three, three possibilities. One is you really cannot do this. This is not something that's within your skill set or your ability for whatever reasons. So look for a new opportunity. Mm-hmm. You know, second possibility is I can do this, but I, I need to do it in a, in a different way. I, I need to use a different strategy. Third possibility is I can do this, but I need to improve myself. I need to mm. learn more, you know, something like that. But, you know, there, there's always, you know, yeah, I, and one of the things I really enjoy with entrepreneurs, you know, one of the easiest ways to identify an entrepreneur is whatever they are doing right now, you start talking with them. And they always have two, three, four, five ideas for other things they could be doing. You know, mm-hmm. there's kind of that always, always looking for and being open to new opportunities. I think uh, I, I see so many people that kind of get 
trapped like they have one vision one direction this is what i'm doing and they don't see anything else i have so many people comment like you know i've been so lucky and uh with some of the opportunities i've had and it's not because i was lucky it was because when that opportunity came along other people wouldn't have seen it or wouldn't have taken it i did so how important though is that that's a good point is that how important it is to stay focused on the one thing though that you're doing other than because yeah. it's, it's easy to have a bunch of ideas but yep. So what happens is a lot of people start and then they don't fully go into that because they're spread too thin on four things instead of one thing. Yeah. And I think like in startup stage, like yeah, I'm getting a new business going right now. Right now I'm mostly focused just on that. But like I said, my goal with this new company is to make myself obsolete. Yeah. I want to be building this company up in a way, training other people, putting other people in so that half a year, a year down the road, I am not essential to that company's ongoing, ongoing business. At that point, I can then be moving on and you know, doing something else. Not, not that I'm forgetting or abandoning this, but there are other things that I can be doing. And uh, also, there, there's the other side, like you know, when I start a business and it turns out that business doesn't work out. Instead of that not working and me kind of being there directionless, no idea what I'm going to do, that feeling of hopelessness, I've right away got two or three other things that I can, okay, well, that didn't work. I can do this instead. Mm-hmm. You know, yeah. it, kind of that always having that forward motion. When that forward motion is filled with one thing right now, then focus on that. But when you get yeah. the room that that forward motion can include other things, do that. What what else are you working on right now? Where can we have, where can everybody check out your work, your stuff? Well, uh, my main work, like I said, is doing cultural diversity training. Yeah. So that my company is called the Language of Culture. Uh, so people can go to Language of Culture, all one word, languageofculture.net. I'm never ever doing just one thing. That's my main focus. But being back here now, I love being involved in the entrepreneur community, particularly encouraging, helping younger entrepreneurs, things like that. So I'm also planning on getting some uh, entrepreneur mastermind groups going where basically get a group of entrepreneurs together, just helping each other out, giving each other ideas, sharing resources, everything like that, uh, creating more accountability. Uh, I've been, I've started several entrepreneur groups in China. So I've got experience doing this now. I want to do it, do it here in Vancouver. Uh, so yeah, I want to, I'm going to get that going. Yeah. And then, yeah, whatever other opportunities pop up along the way. But those are, those are the main focuses right now. Are you on social media? Yep. Uh, right now, mainly Facebook and LinkedIn. Cool. Uh, I do uh, pro- probably best for people looking for me to check my, to go to LinkedIn. Okay. Uh, see, easy just to find me there. John, John Lombard, or is it different than that? Well, actually, it's John Lombard, but there's a whole bunch of John Lombards on there. If you put in John Lombard, China, okay. then you'll find me. Awesome. Yeah. yeah, I just like to keep it super clear for people because I find in these parts of the shows, like the, the message, just to make it easy. So, because um, there is a lot of people with the same name. So, John Lombard, China for social media. Yeah. And awesome. And the. And your website, sorry, let's just plug in one more time. Yeah. Languageofculture.net. Okay, we'll have all of that in the show notes as well. Yeah. Um, awesome, man. Well, I appreciate you coming in, uh, giving us some value. That was great. Um, Thanks, I appreciate being invited on. Yeah, yeah absolutely. Glad we, could, glad we could finally pull it together. Absolutely. So my, my, my last question is, what is one lesson that adversity has taught you? I think pretty much similar to what I said before, that... Um, kind of building on what I said before, 
in life, you've essentially got two choices. Either you're controlled by life or you control life. You know, um, if you're controlled by life basically means you've got the attitude that, you know, whatever happens, well, there's nothing I can do about it. It's beyond my control. Um, you know, or the other is whatever happens, there's always something that's within my control, how I respond to that, you know, things like that. And yeah, so the number one thing I've learned from, from adversity, struggle, everything like that is how to look for and identify that part that I can control. Awesome. You know, um, I think that there's nothing more crippling to somebody than the feeling of hopelessness that, you know, this is outside of my control. There's nothing I can do. There's always something you can do. There's always something in your control. Yeah. Awesome. Great. Well said. Well, thanks very much, man. It's it's good that you're back in, in Canada and now you're things a little bit slower, a little bit easier. Yeah. <laughs> awesome, man. That's great. Well, I wish you the best, man. I'm, I'm super grateful to connect and um, we'll make sure everybody checks you out and we'll have everything in the show notes. Great. Thanks a lot, Lance. Thanks so much, everybody. John Lombard. Thank you, fam. Hope you guys enjoyed that. Leave us a review and please make sure you subscribe to keep up with all the action. University of Adversity episodes, Monday, Wednesday, Friday. We're coming out with a lot of awesome guests. We got some big names coming up and we're going to continue to bring the heat. So you don't want to miss anything. Make sure you subscribe and check out all the stuff that John has. It's all in the show notes. Love you guys. Happy Monday. Catch you next time.